Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, where we take a look back at some of our highlights from the past five days. And this week we had an incredibly emotional interview with a mother whose baby boy died of sepsis back in 2014. We hear about how she's been campaigning to raise awareness of the disease and condition and uh, hearing the breakthroughs she has made in the UK, quite incredible. Also this week we've talked about the Samaritans, an organisation which is literally changing lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we debated the importance of positive role models in film for girls, especially Christie's favourite, Star Wars. But first, the Isle of Man played host to a Welsh superstar this week, and I think it's fair to say that we did get a little bit excited here at Women Today about Sir Tom Jones. We are coming live from Nobles Park this afternoon because uh, there's something rather exciting happening, Christy Dehaven. There is. Uh, there's a rather large gig happening immediately beside us in an enormous tent. Uh, some of you may be aware of this because we have talked about it on and off for the past week with Excited Tones, and uh, we're standing in the bandstand immediately beside the large tent because we've got our own little gigs going on today and I think we've got a pretty good setup here actually we uh, are going to be having some of the artists who are going to be playing ahead of Sir Tom who is arriving a little bit later I thought you'd forgotten his surname no I didn't I didn't didn't forget of course not what are you talking about Um, we are going to be uh, hopefully inviting some of the local artists to come and play here but it is a, a bustle of activity just behind us and uh, one of the people who's behind this whole event is Leo Hanlon from Tiny Cow. How are you feeling? Uh, relaxed. You look very relaxed. Yeah. Apparently, and I don't know if this is true, Alex Brindley is with us all afternoon as well, um, he said if you're in shorts you're relaxed, if you're wearing long trousers you're more stressed. Is this true? Well, shorts mean good weather, good weather at events means relaxed. So I mentioned you are the CEO of Tiny Cow. Take me back first of all to how Tiny Cow was named. I love this story. <laughs> Well, when my little boy was very, very small, um, I said to him that I wanted to name a company, and he asked me what a company was, and I explained it was where people go to work, and he was playing with his farm set at the time, and he held up his little farmyard animal and said, call it Tiny Cow Daddy, and we've still got it today. I love that. Um, When it comes to organising an event of this nature, um, you don't get many big names since uh, Sir Tom Jones. Where do you start? First of all, in the pub. throwing around some names and as the evening progresses you whittle them down and go okay let's just work with superstars like Pet Shop Boys and Sir Tom Jones and yeah of course and we you know joking aside we just want to bring the best artists to any shows that we do and the same for the island. And we were hearing yesterday that uh, in terms of superstar names uh, Sir Tom is actually he's quite modest in in his requirements I mean some superstars get rather a bad name don't they for the things they They expect. Well, he's a he's a sound Welshman, so of course he's sensible about these things. He's an absolutely smashing bloke as well. So, um, and he puts on the most amazing show. You know, people tend to think, oh, this is Tom Jones, this is Tom Jones I know, and yet his show gets updated all the time, brings in different genres into songs that you might already know, and gives a new twist to them, and just the most incredible show. And we have mentioned the Grand Marquis, or Tom's Big Top, as Christy has renamed it. Nice. Um, quite a spectacular construction. Yes, it dominates the skyline if you're down on Douglas Head, doesn't it? This great big walloping red and white thing. Though uh, my wife did say that she thinks the turrets on it look a little bit like white friends, so I'm not so sure about that. They're tiny uh, hats, that's what they are. Tiny little hats to keep everybody dry. Yeah, yeah, that's cute. As opposed to white friends. Better than white friends, which is a great image that will stay with me now. Thanks for that, Lee. Um, Talk me through this afternoon then. People are going to start arriving um, from around two. How's it all going to work? 
Yeah, since, so we got the first artist, we kick off with Hamish Farrer um, at two, uh, three o'clock. So you'll be on stage, we give everybody a chance to get in and grab, grab a drink and get, get relaxed. Then we've got uh, people like Joe Tracy, who's been recording with you know people like Embrace, and they've been working with him in the studio. We've got a lass from the northeast called Haley McKay, who's been working um, really, really hard and playing shows with people like Jamie Cullum and people like that. Uh, we've got, gosh, let me just run it through my head a second. I'm impressed so, actually. There are no notes here, Christy. Oh, but yeah. He's just uh, reciting it. Yeah. So uh, who else have we got? We've got we've got. Um, Joe Crookle, obviously, he's coming along, at, who's been playing with shows with people like Travis, and we've got Paradisio, who've been with Carol King, playing massive Hyde Park in London shows, and people like AJ Park, who've, uh, AJ Brown, I should get his name right, who've been playing big park shows with, you know, little known artists like Sting and Bert Bacharach and all crazy stuff like that, and yeah, just a fantastic day. And with an event like this being held here in the Isle of Man, how important was it for you to have some really good local acts in the mix? Oh, absolutely essential. You know, we brought we brought loads of acts here. Uh, we booked acts like James and 10CC and worked on other shows like like the Weller shows and things like that in different capacities. You know, Tiny Cow works in different ways. And no, is that can you say that Tiny Cow works in different ways? I think you can. Yeah, we moo and we bleat. Yeah. Um, it's calling to you. that and I get a stirring in my belly and I was just talking to to you Beth and also our guest Sinead about this what did you think when you heard that Beth? I felt nothing really? Nothing. Sinead? I thought we were still on an ad break sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm so disappointed I'm I feel sorry. like you're really missing out but the reason why we played that is because it's Comic Con time Comic Con time at the moment so comic-con happens all over the world uh, there have been some brilliant uh, photos and videos coming out of the fans and guests and trailers of new movies uh, online one of the things that's emerged though from comic-con san diego is the number of young girls who went to that convention dressed as ray who right so ray <laughs> is the new heroine of the star wars film series she's brave she's intelligent she can fight and beat the strongest male characters uh, and she's given many girls who saw the film The Force Awakens which is the one that she's in ladies uh, it's given them an amazing female role model hooray yeah, hooray it's hooray hooray Get it? Okay, carry on. Very good. Uh, so the fact that Disney took over the franchise worried a lot of super fans originally, but actually what it's done is it has made the film or brought it back to being more accessible for children because the most recent films, I think, were very, very dark, whereas this it is still a bit dark and there's still some fighting in it, but it's the whole Goodwins over evil thing and it's very uplifting, very inspiring. So we wondered what you all thought, uh, posted some pictures no, on Christy our Facebook. Christy wondered what you thought, I to be honest. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so we posted the pictures of these young girls dressed up as Ray um, on our Facebook page and we wanted to know what you thought about young girls having this role model uh, from Star Wars, from screen, but also someone, she is essentially a lone fighter. She does have a bit of a vicious streak uh, when necessary, but, you know, what do you all think of it, the fact that this girl is becoming a role model for young girls all over the world? Brilliant. You have no idea who she is. You can't even comment. Um, yeah, but, but you know, I have got uh, two sons who are very into Star Wars and um, a little girl, I mean, she's only three, but she's quite into Star Wars as well. Um, 
and yeah, I think I think it is a good thing for her to have a strong female character mm-hmm. rather than just want to be Yoda, who I love. I love Yoda. To say he's my favourite Star Wars character, but maybe not know. the best for speech development. Yoda, <laughs> I'm <not>. thinking. <laughs> but, yeah. but the thing about her, right, is she is so she's physically strong because she can fight with the best of them. She's very independent. Um, you don't actually know her full backstory yet, but she's seemingly alone and has coped very well with that. She's sort of almost brought herself up. Uh, she can fly spaceships. She flies the Millennium Falcon and she leads John Boyega's character, who's called Finn. She leads him through this war sequence rather than him lead her. So it's like a woman taking the lead. And I do genuinely find it really inspiring and to see these young girls dressed up as her, I think is brilliant. Uh, we did put it on Facebook, as I say, we've had some comments um, when we asked what you thought of it Annabelle said absolutely great I had Daphne Nancy Drew Aslan and Wonder Woman as my dress up heroes and Wonder Woman had a gold whip of a belt to lasso anyone with love that yep exactly see I think you'd like Ray uh my friend Lana whose uh, name on Facebook is Liliana Skywalker not surprisingly says I love it I was She-Ra when I was a kid (gasps) Love She-Ra. Yeah, She-Ra was great. And also Gem of Gem and the Holograms. <gasps> Gem, I could sing, but I won't. I Gem, truly that. outrageous. Oh, she had a guitar. She of was course a, she yeah. did. Lana would love to be yeah. a rock star, so that, that makes sense. And we've got some other comments, but we'd love to know what you all think. One double six, one double seven. Please back me up here, people out there. I, I'm thinking there's no Star Wars fans listening, I'm afraid. So um, it's two against one in here. So, uh, yeah, defeated. Prove them wrong, people. But- And also this afternoon, we're talking about Samaritan's Isle of Man, an organisation which is run by volunteers from premises in Douglas around the clock every single day of the year. And we're joined live by the Deputy Director for Recruitment and Selection and fellow non-Star Wars fan, I'm afraid, (laughs) uh, Sinead Nudd. Sinead, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. How did you first become involved in the Samaritans? Uh, I moved to the island in 1992 and... After a few months, I thought, "Mm, I really should get involved with something. So I thought, the next thing I see that I can do, I will do. And there was an advert for the Samaritans in the old Manx Independent newspaper. And uh, I thought, I'll do that. And that was it. It was simple. And I absolutely fell in love with what Samaritans do. I'm hugely passionate about what we do. And it must be quite something, I suppose, to think that in in the years that you've been involved with the organisation, I mean, you must have changed people's lives for the better because, you know, listening to people at an hour of their need. Yeah, I I think all the Samaritan volunteers would agree that um, we we do it because we just need we just want to be there for people in, in when they need to speak. Um so a lot of the time when callers say, you know, thank you so much for listening to me, our natural response will be that there's absolutely no need to say thank you because it's such a privilege for someone to open up to you, uh, particularly fellas, you know, when they are able to just talk and, um, you know, the horrible phrase of man up, they get so much and it's a phrase I wholly disagree with. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a genuine privilege. The thing about Samaritans is... Um nobody who works there or volunteers there is to give advice it is about yeah. listening but how hard is it Sinead when you're listening to somebody pouring their heart out and you're thinking oh this is what you should do I mean how do you stop that natural instinct to say well, give advice we're very well trained um, and we're trained in the techniques of how not to give advice and how to listen how to ask them if they've already thought about doing something so um, you can say have you already thought about X so that they can talk about that? And if it's something that they haven't thought about, then maybe it's a trigger point. 
but we don't know enough about their story to to give advice and it takes a huge amount of pressure off you not to have to solve their problem <laughs> you just have to listen and uh, and you know let them work it out in the end what do you like when your friends come to you for advice oh crumbs <laughs> uh i think i'm probably pretty much the same i think i like to try and sort of say well what have you thought about um because it's so easy to jump in with two feet and kind of tell people what to do um so yeah i think i'm like that in in nature anyway i kind of try to look all around something before um jumping in and saying well this is absolutely what you should do <laughs> it is five to three been talking about samaritan's isle of man with sinead who's the deputy director for recruitment and selection and uh, we've had a, a text in sinead saying i was seriously depressed many years ago and rang the samaritans as i wanted to end my life because of a helpful stranger on the line i didn't i lived through the dark days and am now a happily married lady with two children thanks to them three lives are now lived to the full i guess it's, it's difficult to put into words how something like that makes you feel that's exactly why we give up our time and to that person i'm so glad that you called and to everybody else listening who's thinking i wonder if i could that's why just pick up the phone please now with uh, jane hall and juan moore um i'm just going to throw this in here now this is actually uh, christie's topic not mine and she's talking about this uh, channel four program naked attraction have you seen it no. No. I've heard of it. I've You've heard of it. Um, I watched a little bit of it on the recommendation you know? of my friend. My friend was watching it earlier this week, and so I was like, mm, I'll have a look. Ooh. You've got the kind of friends that recommend programs like that to you, Beth. <laughs> have you now? Good company. I was watching Celebrity First Dates at the time because I was watching oh, that. Oh, that's all right. Then. That was okay. Um, it's, what a weird concept. So you have to explain it because I haven't seen it either. Oh, you haven't seen it. No. Okay, basically, I mean, I only came in halfway through and, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, bit which, of a which half? <laughs> it was the bottom half. And basically, there was a woman standing there and there were the, uh, these men behind screens and basically it reveals little bits of them and she decides, looking at various parts of them, uh, who she's going to throw out and who she's going to choose at the end. And it's every part, isn't it? It's, every it, part. It's no holds barred, so My favourite bit, though, is uh, when... <laughs> is when it gets towards the end and she has to choose she has to go and get naked as well oh my word well that's only fair and did they do it the other way around with women choosing yeah yes yeah, so i think it's it i mean i, mean I, men I did, choosing women. Yeah, yeah i did uh, I, I switched off but i have yeah yeah just weird what a strange concept i'll stop talking about it there's now. stuff you can get away with on television now yeah. crazy uh, we're talking about art there uh, was that... a reason for that <laughs> <laughs> well naked have you ever done any life drawing uh, yeah it's one of the classes i teach at college actually is, is life drawing and i have to say i i have taught it to a level students who've never done life drawing before so they come into a room and a chap steps into a chap or a lady sometimes step into the middle and just take their clothes off and it's interesting to see their reactions sometimes it's often big red faces little sniggers but but after a while and they get used to drawing it and you I know, think that's what people it, have said when we've spoken about it in the past that actually you, you sort of get over the embarrassment fairly quickly and it is just, pretty quick most of the time yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. We're talking about your exhibition, which opens on July the thirty-first. And one of the things you were saying at the start of the show, June, was that you like to draw about um, things that relate to everyday events that happen in your life. Just explain to me, then. I've got your flyer in front of me here. There's a, a man who looks like he's being strangled by an octopus. It's coming out of his heart, though. Okay. What does and that the, mean? The piece is called "Desire Will Be the End of Me," and it's all about when you get into a relationship or you like somebody that might not be the best person for you and ultimately it's going to cause you more hassle than you actually think it will. I have to say, 
June's work, he, talk, he was just talking about making tea earlier, but his work about relationships is so powerful because he somehow manages to represent the idea of whether it's heartbreak, which it often is in your work, to be fair, June. Uh, you talk about heartbreak a lot and also the idea of falling in love with someone. The little images that he uses are just not what you would expect at all, but represent it so well. I've, I've, there's a few few on a poster from this 100 um, Works exhibition, and they're just really inventive and really yeah, interesting. They, they kind of do, do me uh, a bit of a disservice, really, because people look at them and they've never met me and then they meet me at an exhibition and uh, I go, hey, I'm Jim Moore and they go, really? I thought you'd be taller and less fat and drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so I think because my figures are quite elongated and mopey and, you know, I'm, I'm not really like that. And I think it confuses people a little bit. I, I think it's great that, that what you do with your exhibitions though because you always try and do something a little bit different, don't you? So for instance, you had Gigavision yep. where you worked with musicians and you interpreted their songs into art and you had them then playing at the exhibition. You did the 100 images, didn't you? You've done loads of different things. How do you come up with the ideas? Uh, I, th I like, I think I do art anyway, all the time. Uh, but I think if you're doing an exhibition or something, it's got to be an event, you, you know, I, I personally, unless I'm really into it, I wouldn't necessarily go to an exhibition and see it. So I kind of want it to be a bit of a spectacle and a bit of a bit of a reason to, to go to these places and, and see them. So what I ended up doing this time, because I was a little bit self-conscious that I haven't really done a show for a very long time, uh, I offered people a free pencil drawing if they gave me their postal address so I could send them an invite. So I uh, that kind of backfired a little bit because I've had to do about 100 of them. Uh, you always do this, though. You yeah, don't I'm really... lucky I can work very quickly, yeah. but... Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, a lot of time and effort has gone into these uh, drawings that the people well, will receive at yeah, your exhibition. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but, Jim, you are also a part-time lecturer at the Isle of Man College, and as someone who is obviously very immersed in art yourself, how do you find the process of, of teaching other people about it and about techniques? Uh, it's really interesting, actually. Um, I think to, to make a go in art, you have to live, breathe, sleep, eat it. You know, and I've, I've been doing this professionally for just over 10 years now, which is crazy. Um, so it's interesting when students come through, I try and, you know, impart some enthusiasm onto them and, and sort of, that sounds horrible, actually. But um, just try and get them really excited about what they're doing, because I, I, I still believe that everybody is an artist. They just lack encouragement or practice. You hear that, Christy? You see all those doodles that I do on a piece of paper? I'm an artist. You can you sell them totally, for millions, totally. Beth. Yeah. I mean, if you've got any room in your latest exhibition, June, I mean, oh, I, I, I could probably... probably yeah, yeah. brilliant. <laughs> 16 minutes past two. And on mandate this morning, we heard former England and Liverpool football captain Mark Wright speak about how and why he's going to raise awareness about fostering and adoption in the Isle of Man. Now, the Mark Wright soccer camp and corporate tournament is going to take place over here in the October half term. It's being run in conjunction with the Children's Centre. And Mark Wright was actually on the island yesterday to finalise arrangements. And our very own sports editor, Tim Glover, met up with him while he was here. And Tim, uh, you came to see us after you've been speaking mm. to him and you were genuinely really inspired by what you heard. Yeah, I mean, I went along to a, to a pretty standard press conference and I thought it was going to be all about the soccer school fundamentally and about uh, uh, the corporate tournament and about the fundraising side, but there was so much more to it and uh, the fact that I walked in and saw all the children's centre staff there, government officials there, it was an 11.30 start to the press conference and uh, 12.35 or so he stopped talking. He was just so full of 
enthusiasm, Mark Rides. Uh, I mean, he's, his background, basically, he was a pretty rough diamond of a footballer, if you remember him, playing for Liverpool and uh, Southampton and England. Uh, no holds barred, centre-half. And he was from a council estate background that he was very open about as well and uh, had got into trouble at his first club, Southampton, within months of arriving there. Um, but he, through his second marriage, has uh, uh, met his wife and uh, she was passionate uh, about fostering because she couldn't have children herself. And he, he talked through all his experiences there and uh, just was phenomenally inspiring. I mean, I've been doing this job for 20 years and I've met, you know, we're privileged, aren't we, to, to meet some really, really interesting people. And I put him right up there with Jackie Stewart and others that have met that you really were genuinely taken aback by. And uh, I wasn't expecting to. I thought I was just going to get a soccer school, half-term holiday piece, a little bit about fostering and uh, adoption maybe as a news item and a chance to sit down with a former England uh, football captain and chat about his career as a feature for our weekend sport. But it was so, so, so much more. What do you think is the difference at having somebody who has obviously been in such high-profile roles talking about something which can make a huge difference both to the, the people who choose to foster and adopt and, and, of course, the children involved. What difference does it make, do you think? I think massive, and uh, the fact that he's bringing this soccer school here, I mean, he's doing this in very many places around uh, the British Isles, but further afield, Gibraltar, and his business partner is actually another famous football name, Michael Owen, who well, people may well have heard of as well. They're doing stuff in China as well, where there is a chronic, uh, need for fostering out there and adoption and he says football is a worldwide brand that he can help raise awareness and raise support for fostering and uh, then long-term adoption as well so he's using football he's using his contacts but he's also using his very own personal experience of fostering and adoption as well well here is mark talking about the highs and lows of fostering and adoption some parts of it become hard and other, other parts when you see a child um, have a smile on their face and they come through the other side like our daughter Sonia has then you take a lot of pride in that because obviously you know not being your birth child and then the problems that they have when they come to you to overcome all that and then them to call you uh, dad uh, is, a, is a big thing and, and there, was, there was a couple of stories that, that I'll just tell you quickly is that she said to me she said to Sue uh, one day, uh, asking her these questions, and she said, can I? And I said, well, you got go and speak to your dad. And she came up to me. She had her head down, Nigel, and she, put, she was looking down at the floor, and I said, Dana, what's up? Put your head up, what's up? Said, you need something? And she went, no, 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 okay, can I ask you something? I said, of course you can. Of course you can. What is it, what is it you want? And she went, and she put her head down again, and said, is it okay if I call your dad from now on? And I went, oh, of course you can. <laughs> of course you can. And when that day comes, you know that you've, You've, you've gone past becoming a foster carer. You're becoming someone that she relies on and someone she trusts and, 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 and she feels secure. When that day comes, it's a special day. And another day when she was sat in the car to play I'd Spy, and then she said, um, um, BDE, in the car? Was it outside? And she went, in the car. I don't want to get beat by a six-year-old, seven-year-old about, about playing I'd Spy, do I? So I'm looking around the place, like, so did you give in? And I went... In the end, I have to give in. Oh, I don't know what it is. You know, she turned around and she said, she went, best dad ever. You know, not from your birth children, from, from a child that has come in from somewhere else and then all of a sudden, they, like I said before, they feel happy. And when that time comes, 
for everybody in the world, unless they're a really strong or, or difficult person, that's a special moment. That's Mark Wright speaking on Mandate this morning. Uh, Tim, what do we know about uh, this event that's happening in then at the October half term? There's going to be a lot more about it. I mean, he was sorting out the venue. There's going to be a Facebook page set up. It's being run uh, to raise awareness here on the island. So the Children's Centre are actively involved. And on Monday in Mandate, to throw forward, we'll hear more from Mark Wright. But we'll also hear uh, from Nigel Howard, who's the deputy manager from the fostering service at the Children's Centre, gold dust really for them isn't it to have a high profile football figure like Mark Wright really raising an awareness here and there is a chronic shortage of foster uh, carers here on the island I think it's around the 50 mark where children need to be housed and have foster homes here which surprised me as well that it was that high I knew there was a problem because they've had their campaign going but uh, they're hoping to have a lot of the foster children involved in the soccer camp at half term uh, and really try and sort things out the other point, just to finish with, is that um, he said that it's mainly uh, with the corporate event and the gala dinner, it will mainly be men that will attend this soccer school. Uh, uh, parents will be there at the, with the kids through the week, but the men will go to the dinner and to the corporate thing. And it says it's turning the men around. The, the women will have that maternal instinct anyway, but by turning the men round to actually thinking well hang on we need to do something here we can help out men will be in tears he said at the dinner uh, and and that's what they're aiming to do women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away it was when he first started nursery that he became more unwell um and we were just getting told that this was normal that he was in nursery it was just a viral infection he's teething so all of these things he, you know, um, conspired almost against him. And, you know, we did take him to hospital. We did take him to um, the GP. We took him and got a second opinion. And sadly, in, in William's case, which we would hope would never happen again, every single person got it wrong. Um, and it would only have taken one person to say, hang on a minute, something's not quite right. Um, and what actually happened in the last 36 hours of William's life was he... He peaked a really high temperature. It was over 40. And so we, we went straight back into emergency and they just said that it was normal, that it was um, viral infection to, to give him over-the-counter medicines and fluids and lots of rest. So we took him home and the temperature did come down. Um, then the next day he still wasn't himself, but his temperature was down and we thought, oh, well, that's good. Um, but I was still a bit concerned, so I contacted 111 and I went through everything. I went through all of his symptoms, how he'd been, the, the weeks leading up to it. And um, they said it's not urgent, um, so you can have a call back with, you know, within six hours with the doctor. Well, when, by the time the doctor had called back, William was actually in bed and he was asleep. So I asked the doctor, in his professional opinion, what he thinks I should do. And he said he's best placed in bed, keep up the fluids and the, you know, the over-the-counter medicines. Um, and if you're concerned, bring him in tomorrow. Um, we checked on William through the night and he was seemingly OK. He was just sleeping. There wasn't anything out of, out of the ordinary. And I woke up just after eight, which was quite odd because William was usually up a little bit earlier than me. And I didn't really think too much of it because I thought he's very tired. He's probably just resting and he, we have a little camera and he was facing away from, from us. So I just got up and made a cup of tea and then come back in. I thought I'm going to go and check on him. And um, it was then that we that I discovered that um, 
that William had actually passed away. The ambulance arrived within four minutes and I can't fault their, um, what they did. Um, but there was sadly nothing that could be done to save him. Um, but at that point, it wasn't obvious. You know, he didn't have an obvious rash. He didn't um, look any differently to the, what he had done the day before, you know. It was only, you know, several weeks down the line that um, after William's post-mortem came back that they said he had an, um, a, a very large amount of fluid in his chest called a pleural effusion. And I said, well, that's quite strange because I've been taking him to and from the doctors, you know, for quite a while about his chesty cough, etc. And what actually transpired is that William actually had pneumonia and the pneumonia had caused this buildup of fluid in his um, cavity around his lung. And it was this that had seeped into his bloodstream causing sepsis. Um, so it wasn't until much later on that we that we found out that we actually heard that word sepsis. And, you know, we consider ourselves fairly diligent people. You know, we read up about everything, what's concerning, what's not, etc. And had never heard of it. So, And yet, Melissa, so. there's estimated to be over 200,000 cases of sepsis in the UK each year. And they say that 60,000 estimated deaths from sepsis in the UK annually. And like you, I've never heard of it before. Yeah, I think there's been, obviously, um, with the work that we've been doing this year, it became um, very evident very quickly that actually there was this huge gaping hole um, of awareness that just needed, desperately needed to be plugged because of the um, huge amount of deaths, like you say, and the, the cases of sepsis. And I think it goes back a long way in terms that, for example, William died of pneumonia. And in a lot of cases, if, if an adult has pneumonia, that gets put on the death certificate as the cause of death, whereas actually, in a lot of cases, it's sepsis. So it's going um, misrecorded, so to speak. Um, and, and, and this year, we're now putting together, well, the Sepsis Trust are putting together um, a sepsis registry to record data in terms of where sepsis has come from, what's caused it, the, the number of deaths, whether it's in hospital, out of hospital, etc. So actually, we can begin to look at those trends and look at what's happening and and rationalise those figures because I think 44,000 deaths in 2015, that's too many. However, what we can do is get those figures down by, we hope, by a third, over a third, very quickly, by quicker treatment, by um, better awareness, um, not just throughout um, the NHS or within health organisations, but actually with the public as well. So if we can get people like myself on that day before William died to say, hey, you know, I was looking for meningitis, I was looking everywhere, all over him for a rash because that's kind of drummed into your head. Actually, could this be sepsis? And get that buzzword out there. Your mission now is to make people incredibly aware of it. And you're doing various things. I mean, one of the things is making sure that sepsis awareness leaflets are now being included in bounty packs that new mothers receive when leaving hospital. You've made incredible changes also with regards to helping with the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence since William's death. I mean, what changes have been implemented? Um, I think the Sepsis Trust have worked um, in collaboration with, with NICE um, and they have created um, a string of guidelines about sepsis, which is um, pathways and clinical tools to basically get everyone 
um, throughout the NHS, whether you're in acute care, whether you're GP, whether you're out of hours, to all work from the same guidelines. So everyone is doing the same thing, assessing sepsis as an urgent medical need, just as a potential heart attack. It's not just a case of getting the general public to know what it is. It's actually getting doctors to think what it is. They all know what sepsis is, but it's actually getting them to think of it as a medical emergency, um, just like a suspected heart attack. And these nice guidelines um, are a very huge a leap forward in doing that. Melissa, I have to ask you, you know, so many steps and they've been missed so many times, lots of errors here. Do you feel angry? Um, I think it would be a lie to say that I'm not angry. Um, I think we've every reason to be angry. Um, However, I don't want my life to be consumed with anger or bitterness. And certainly William as a person didn't know bitterness. He didn't know anger. He didn't know pain. And it wouldn't be right for me to continue to be his mum being driven by anger because that's just not healthy. Um, And so what we want to do is, by sharing William's story, it's very, very painful for us. But equally, we can tell people about the little boy who lived. And that fills me with nothing but pride that that little boy is mine. And so I don't want to go down a road of blaming um, But yes, we are angry. Um, But it's about channeling that anger into something positive. Now let's talk about something positive that's happening in your tummy right now. Yes, we we found out actually, uh, probably actually six or seven weeks after we'd been to London and William's story had been breaking news, we had no clue that actually we were expecting a little brother or sister for William, um, which was a shock. Um, It was not something that we had planned Um, So we like to look at this baby as a gift from William. Although it's a very happy time for us, it's a very nerve-wracking time. It's tinged with sadness that William's not here to share this with us. Um, But this little baby's going to grow up knowing what a wonderful big brother he or she has and, and what a guardian angel they have, because I don't think you could get a better one. Firstly, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing to be coming over to the Isle of Man. It'll be my first trip um, across the short pond, so that'll be great. You lift my heart up when the rest of me is down. The, I've been doing the, a few of the Tom Jones gigs, actually. first one was about a year ago, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to sort of follow him about and uh, keep popping up on his shows, so it's, uh, it is lovely, actually, and he's... Um, his audiences are great, and um, it's just really exciting. I'm just intrigued to know, has Tom been supportive? Does he, does he chat to you? Does he give you advice and things? Yes, well, he's, to be honest, he's a bit of a, a ninja. He, he, he's very hard <laughs> to get, in, get hold of because he, he turns up and does his thing and then he's, he's gone like that. But um, I have had an absolute pleasure of meeting him, and he is very supportive. And In fact, when we were in Cornwall recently, he was at the side of the stage while I was doing my thing, which was quite special, so... He's an amazing bloke, you know, and uh, to do what he's doing at, you know, at his age, it really is staggering, and um, his show is still sensational. So, um, but yeah, no, he's he's a he's a jolly jolly old chap, and he, he's uh, he's lovely to be around. So it's it makes it it makes it extra special when when it's like that as well.
I bet, and I'm now picturing Tom Jones as a ninja, which is one of the best images I've had in my head for a long time. <laughs> I feel the close Now you have a you do have a varied style. You do get compared quite a lot to Michael Bublé. Are, are you happy with that comparison? Actually, my um, when I when I really got excited about music, it was when I first saw Michael Bublé, which is quite funny now because I remember seeing him at the Manchester Apollo, and I wanted to I wanted to be in his band because I played the saxophone as well um, when I was about fourteen, and then ever since I've been I've just had an extra passion for music really. Uh, and you know, comparisons with with artists such as that, you know, they're great. It's uh, it's always it's always flattering, really. But obviously, I'm doing my my own thing, and my sound is uh, is developed. And playing the piano as well is a, is a huge part of my act, which also gives sort of lens comparison to sort of Billy Joel and Elton John and that kind of thing. So, but you know, when when someone compares you, it's it's always a good thing, I think, because it's. You know those artists are great, and especially when you idolise them as well, it's it's never a bad thing. So, I suppose as well as an audience, it kind of gives us a reference point, doesn't it? For if it's a new artist you haven't heard before, at least you know. Well, I'm roughly going to expect something like that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that that it always it always helps. You know, that's it's probably the most difficult thing when you you know an emerging artist to try and describe what your sound is, and obviously using comparisons does work. And I, I really do get a buzz out of performing in front of completely new crowds and these support shows are perfect for that so people don't know what to expect and then you can just sort of play off it and see what happens so it's yeah it's great and it must be really satisfying as well when you drop in a cover by someone like Disclosure which must sort of really throw people because you clearly do it in your own way but you sort of recognise those elements and think oh man that's Disclosure which is so indie and so kind of young and now which is just sort of throws it a whole different angle to the mix doesn't it? Well, definitely. I mean, obviously, I'm a I'm a young-ish artist, so you know, I'm still very, very much listening to current affairs and current music and all that stuff. So, um, I, I it is it is extremely exciting to do stuff like that. And um, when I do that song, I, I you know I, I don't introduce it quite often and see see how many people I can spot in the audience singing along or <laughs> you know it's it's great. You know, it's, and it is it's, it's super rewarding to do do what I do, and um, I'm very thankful for these shows and I'm, I'm very excited to be coming over so hopefully the uh, I've heard the Isle of Man uh, uh, crowds are going to be wild so that should be uh, <laughs> should be good yeah, yeah we're off the hook <laughs> off the hook that's what I heard yeah. yeah so what can we expect from your set then tomorrow I'll be doing a few songs that people will definitely recognise and I'll be doing a few original things that um, will get people clapping and it's just going to be a fun time you know it's all about my show is um, it's just me and my piano um, I'm just going to have a great time and hopefully you guys will appreciate what my, what my music's about and um, we'll, uh, we'll get a selfie and all that stuff. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> oh, it sounds like great fun. And you mentioned the audiences. You have played all over the world, haven't you? Tell us a few of the places and tell us which ones really stand out in your mind. Yeah, well, I've, I've been really lucky in that respect. I, um, In fact, one of my favourite things, um, one of my favourite gigs was was in South Africa in a in a really sort of remote place called um, Evita Seperon, which is just up from Cape Town, um, up the west coast. And it was, it was like the craziest thing I've ever done because it's really sort of local South Africans come down and I'm, I was playing my own stuff and I was playing some covers again and it was just exciting, exciting to, to see their reaction. 
Um, and I've done a few, I've done a few things in Ireland. I love going over there. That's that's a great crack over in Ireland. So that's um, and then obviously coming to the Isle of Man, which is the most exciting, obviously. So we're gonna have, a, gonna have a great time. Fingers crossed for the weather and. There's some great artists on as well. It should be a, it should be a great day. It it's a great. really good lineup, isn't it? We're really looking forward to it. It is so exciting, and I'm I'm very fortunate to be able to to do what I do. And music is isn't it's it's not a, a job. It's it's a passion, and uh, I'm having a blast. I, pres- I I think there's there's a certain legacy to be left in music, and if you get it right, then the music it's you know it's timeless and it spans generations, just as Tom Jones and Burt Bacharach. You know, if I can get anywhere near that, I'll be very, very happy. And um, I'm just loving the moments and sharing my music. And and hopefully, you know, in 50, 60 years' time, um, you know, I'll, I'll be able to do what they're doing. And uh, that that's a lovely thought. Yeah, I'd, I'd, that would be great. You are listening to Women Today, and we are here live at the bandstand by Nobles Park beside the Grand Marquee. Uh, I'm talking to Anya here, who has been in the Grand Marquee to see where you're going to be playing later. What did you think of it? Oh, it's just huge, and it's unbelievable. And I think the stage, I, I, I haven't seen the stage now with the whole screens and things, but I'm really psyched to see that. I can't wait. I'm just buzzing. <laughs> I take it this is going to be one of the biggest places you've played so far? I think it is, yeah. It's unreal. I, we've played a few festivals in Ireland and things like that, but nothing, no tent as big as this. I'm so excited. And you're looking forward to seeing Sir Tom? Oh yeah, 100%, I can't wait. Are you a fan? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I watched him on The Voice and things like that. So. Yeah. yeah. Now you're going to sing a song for us now. Are we going to do a cappella? Because yeah. normally you're accompanied, aren't you? But we can't quite, can't quite fix that up in the bandstand now. So tell us a bit about the song you're going to sing. So I'm going to actually do Black Dahlia. So I wrote Black Dahlia about two years ago and I released it just before Christmas time. And if you want to look at it, it's on uh, iTunes and there's a video on YouTube and things like that, so I hope you like this one. Fantastic. Thank Annika, you. I'll take it away. Thank you very much. I was living in Hollywood, trying to make it I know I could. Then some things turned upside down, reached the top, then I hit the ground. And they said I would have a star on the walk of fame. And almost there I got so far But I know who's to blame You said my skin was porcelain And I want fame like Marilyn Bury me in a Zellier Now they call me Black Dahlia my dream and they said I would have a star on the walk of fame and almost there I got so far but I know who's to blame you said my skin was porcelain and I want fame like Marilyn Bear 
call me Black Dahlia. They call me Black Dahlia. I trusted you. You lured me in. And I sold my soul. I thought I would win. You said I would have a star. On the walk of fame Almost there, you know I got so far But I know you're to blame You said my skin was porcelain I wanted fame like Marilyn Bury me in Azalea Now they call me Black Dahlia They call me Black Dahlia, Black Dahlia, they call me Black Dahlia.